Hello, lab rats. It is I, Igor. I wanted to welcome you to another edition of Crime Keeper, part of the Murder Lab Media. I'm pleased to share with you all that we are recently mentioned on our graphic designer's Facebook page for Pop Rock Creations. They did a great job of redesigning our logos, and it was a fun experience. We couldn't be happier with it, unless, of course, it was free. Our main contact, Kyle Sliney, thought I was joking when I asked if we could pay in third-party, out-of-state bad checks. I, I was not. We did, of course, come to an agreement, and I got three words for you. Our lab, pig thighs, implants. Fourth word, amazing results. Pig thighs, the ninth white meat. Two months till crime con in Vegas, whores and hellions. My boyfriend, Paul Hose, will be there. V has not been there ever, so we are totally psyched to be amongst our fellow crimies that I just made that up, that title. All the bad ventriloquist acts in Carrot Top, who I aim to do cocaine with in a closet. Bucket list, check it. Also, check out the link at www.crimecon.com. So, it's been a crazy few weeks here researching this episode. I was deep, deep in Darley country for the main event, but the newsflash in uh, what the fuck segments alone also have been robust in derangement. Darley's case found me obsessed, heartbroken, disgusted, then obsessed again. So, oh, in the bad dreams, not, it's not been great. Let's get this started, shall we? Newsflash. I found a couple that are good for this, so I'll start with the kind of good news. There was a four-year-old girl that had been missing since 2019. She was found alive, but hidden under the stairs in New York. Paisley Schultes, she is now six, was reported missing from Cayuga Heights more than two years ago, and she was taken by her non-custodial parents. Now, that translates to her mom, dad, and grandfather and obviously the courts had decided against allowing her to be in their care. So NBC News uh, Dona Madani from February 15th she reports that they received a tip regarding her whereabouts and they found the young girl after an hour of searching. She was in a makeshift room under the staircase leading to the basement. Now when I kind of heard you know, room under a staircase. I'm thinking Harry Potter, right? So not ideal, but you know, you can have like maybe your owl from Hogwarts there or whatnot. No, you should look at this picture. It's crazy. It's like a very narrow staircase that you, there are these pretty big steps in between and you just pull one down. That's like a fake stair. I mean, it's a stair, I guess, but you pull it down and toward you and inside is a little area just that little area that had blankets and a little pillow and it was filthy oh my god I just I wanted to wash my comforter just looking at how dirty it was in there and it fit her and her mother who I call her bio mom because she is no kind of mother and 
I guess what tipped them off is one of the officers kind of noticed there was a little area between the steps and he said he saw these little tiny feet or toes and he knew something was wrong. Now they had been there a lot before and just knew something was going on. They knew she had to be there. They could not find her. So they'd been there multiple times. This time they did have a search warrant and like I said, found her in those stairs. She had been gone, like I said, for a couple of years. They, the paramedics examined her and found her to be in good health. She was returned to her legal guardian, also to her, I guess, an older brother. So she's back with her family. Kimberly Cooper, Kirk Schultes Jr. and Kirk Schultes Sr. were arrested and charged in her disappearance. So we're talking mom, dad, and grandpa. I, it's beyond. It's just beyond. But thank goodness that she is found. So that's a good place, although a bad thing happened. Good outcome. Moving on to our next one. This is an update. Hopefully we'll come to some type of conclusion it like everyone else the Powell case has been very difficult to hear about V and I heard about it from the family at CrimeCon and of course before then when you heard about in the news how a father could decapitate his own two babies it was again it was just beyond what you can imagine now they're saying they found some clothing, pants, and additional bones from underground in a well that they had been searching. Evidently, there was activity around that area right after she went missing, and I guess that her husband had been there several times, so it caused them to look into it, obviously, and so they are testing the clothing to find out if it's finally her. Looking at the article more, it says that they believe that her husband dumped her body down the mine and lit it on fire. Then they think that he returned to dump more and more debris over the top to deter people from searching. Didn't work, but maybe it delayed it. So maybe it did kind of work. Hopefully, like I said, they'll find something. I guess her family really feels like it's her and I hope that it comes to a resolution soon because there is no such thing really as closure, but they'd have an answer. Like I said, that was pretty. Those two to start with, we had kind of a nice one. Little girl found. Hopefully moving toward some type of conclusion for Susan Powell. Now we get to the what the fuck WTF segment. I'm going to build it <laughs> so we have something of, I guess, lighter although it's still sad, and then we'll build to something scandalous, and that is in the title of the article as well. So the first one we're going to talk about here is the body of a woman was found sitting at a table two years after her death. Found this on CBS News. The Italian police discovered the mummified remains of a 70-year-old woman sitting at a table more than two years after she died, prompting calls for better elder care in the country. Wow, I had no idea that that was a thing. But this is goes on to talk more about it, obviously, and it's very interesting, although, again, very heartbreaking. 
Marinella Beretta, who had no living relatives, was found in her house in Prestino near Lake Cuomo in northern Italy. They found her remains when the police were doing house calls during the high winds. They were letting people know that it could uproot their trees and possibly hurt them or their home. She had not been seen by neighbors for at least two and a half years, but no one thought anything about it because she kept to herself. The family minister, Elena Bonatti, Benetti, said on Facebook that what happened to Marinella Beretta in Como, the forgotten loneliness hurts our consciousness. We have a duty as a community that wants to remain united to remember her life. No one must be left alone. It says that nearly 40% of over 75-year-olds in Italy live alone, according to a 2018 report. The same number also said that they had neither relatives nor friends to turn to in case of need. I guess I always figured that I'd always heard that the culture was more of you live together. Maybe that was just portrayed in movies and that's changed over the years, but that you were together and the women seemed to stay with their families until they were married. And sometimes they were all still together with their grandparents and family, your parents and they just kind of stayed there. That's what I was thinking. Obviously, I'm very wrong. It goes on to say many of us still have memories of the chaotic branched families of peasant Italy. Instead, the modern family is reduced. People die alone and we live alone, which is almost worse. So I guess it does kind of go back to that thought process. Let's be together. But then it kind of changed as people were able to get more wealth. They lived separate with their families. I just had no idea. So this is very eye-opening and not a good way, but let's just, let's take care of each other and especially the older people in our lives. This next WTF I've got for you is triple murder solved 50 years after North Carolina family found slain in bathtub. Now this occurred in 1972, the year I was hatched. It was Bryce, Virginia, and Bobby Durham were found in the bathtub of their home. She had been strangled. The other two had been drowned. Now, they were found during a really bad snowstorm, February 3rd in 72, and this was referred to in the area as the Durham case. They were discovered by the couple's son-in-law after he and his wife went to check on them with the help of a neighbor. For years, people, the people behind the crime remained a mystery until recently... One, the perpetrators have all been identified with three out of the four passing away in the interim. The only living one was Billy Wayne Davis. Look up his uh, picture. He doesn't look like a fun grandpa. I mean, yeah, he's wearing a prison outfit. And even then you could kind of just like put your hand over it and still, oh, Papa's mean. The other three perpetrators were Billy Sunday Burt, sounds like a cowboy name, Bobby Jean Gaddis, Charles David Reed, and like we mentioned, Mean People. How this came to be found out was that Burt, B-I-R-T, his son, was visiting him in prison 
and he kind of just said that he admitted to killing three people in the North Carolina mountains during a heavy snowstorm and relaying that they almost got caught. Apparently, these the foursome were part of the Georgia-based Dixie Mafia, a, quote, loosely organized network believed to have engaged in dozens of violent crimes in Georgia and across the southeast in the 60s and 70s. Fun group. He goes to the police, lets them know, and apparently this uh, Davis dude, mean peepaw, is serving a life sentence for crimes in Georgia, and then he implicated Bert, Gaddis, and Reed, saying they were a hired hit in the area. Still, they don't know who hired them for this, what the connection is, so that'll be interesting to see what shakes out. And Davis says that he was the getaway, getaway driver. He didn't actually go in and do anything. Of course, that's what they say. It does give closure some to the family, but wow, a hit? I mean, oy. now this one is interesting because it's titled Scandal on Wealthy on a Wealthy Island, a Priest, a Murder, and a Mystery. I got this from New York Times, which I do subscribe to because they can give you some good information, um, say what you want, and they have like pretty pictures and stuff so it makes it better to read i'm easy like that so it talks about shelter island which is between long island's north and south forks in march of 2018 reverend charles mccarran was asked to check in on another clergyman who had recently been commuting to a town on long island to fill in as a priest he had failed to show up to church that day so father mccarran drove to the man's white house and then he heard help help so he ran in to the master bedroom where a giant crucifix it says, large enough to be a centerpiece in a church, hung over the bed. There he found Reverend Cannon, C-A-N-N-O-N, Paul Wincura, 87, lying face down on the hardwood floor, wedged between the bed and the wall, his wrists and ankles bound with zip ties. Father Wincura, who the authorities believe had ended up being bound for several days, was airlifted to Stony Brook University Hospital, where his left hand had to be amputated. Over the upcoming weeks, he developed sepsis and died in mid-April. So, of course, everybody was shocked. They're not accustomed to any type of real crime there. Nobody had been murdered there since 98. Weird brag. So, during all this, they're shocked, grieving, scared. Come to find out, someone steps up and a man that grew up in the church accuses him of sex abuse. So I'm going to call him Father Wanker. They go on to talk about the history of the church and that I like this part. They Let's paint a little picture of this Father Wankura. Wanker. Several current and former Caroline Church parishioners interviewed for this article remember Father Wankura as something of an eccentric bon vivant. Love it. He was social, often enjoying cocktail hours with his neighbors when he lived in the parsonage. But he was also emotionally distant, they said, and he had some personality quirks that left an impression, like a faux British accent, despite his being a Long Islander. Okay, so I know being eccentric isn't really a crime, but can it be with just the, just the accent? I mean, granted, it may be better than any that I could do, but come on. One of the women who he married in the church, meaning he oversaw their union, recalled his penchant for Bombay Sapphire Gin 
and his haunting blue eyes that when he looked at you, it felt like he was looking through you. So I'll just, it seems like he was given a creep vibe. You know, hey, I've always said just because you're a man of the cloth doesn't mean you're not an asshole. I mean, respect is earned, you know what I'm saying? Apparently, his wife, Father Wayne Cura's wife, had inherited a good deal of money, and so they bought this weekend home on Shelter Island where they retired to. She died, and he kept himself retaining the image of a well-dressed older man with a few slightly odd flourishes. So I'm thinking like an eye patch, like a cockatoo on his shoulder, not a parrot. You know, I don't know, maybe he put a peg leg on once in a while just for, you know, S&Gs. A neighbor said that uh, Wanker liked to drive his wife's old convertible tooting the horn when he passed the neighbor's house, despite the fact they barely knew each other. He was a visible island character wherever he went, he was always put together, elegant and proper. They do not say that about me. Well, not the elegant part anyway. <laughs> it goes on to talk about the victim, Lou H. Crispin III, who grew up in that area from 75 to 90, went to the church, and he contends that Father Wanker abused him for years inside the church and in public, describing the priest greeting churchgoers on the lawn after his sermons when he would assert his power over the boy. I'm going to read this, and then we're going to move on. Hold on. He would make it look like he was imparting a blessing on me while simultaneously pressing his erection into me. And moving on. Mr. Crispin filed a civil complaint against three parties, including the Episcopal Diocese of Long Island and Caroline Church. He's seeking $20 million in damages. He said a friend of a friend who was also sexually abused as a child while attending St. David's, an all-boys Catholic school in Manhattan, encouraged him to come forward. And he said, he goes on, Crispin, to say that he finds it hard to believe that it just happened to him. Problem is bigger than me and what happened to me. I want the culture of the Caroline Church to be exposed, which seems to be a theme just in the Catholic Church. So, of course, uh, New York Times reached out to the diocese, to the attorneys and no response goes on to explain the early trauma bled into every facet of his life he struggled with abuse problems controlling anger depression and homelessness he's now sober living in North Carolina working with people in recovery and I love to hear stories like that that he turned that when he's helping other people and he can honestly say I was there no judgments and that goes such a long way to really healing both parties when Mr. Crispin first heard the news of Father Wanker's killing, it filled him with regret. I'm sorry he's dead. I wanted to see him go to jail as an 80-year-old child molester. So they are still looking into it. It's still an open case. And I will let you know, as things develop, I'll end right here where it says, The complaint also makes the unsubstantiated assertion that Father Wankura's killing in March of 2018 was probably an act of retaliation. Duh. It reads, the circumstances surrounding the attack on the Reverend remain mysterious and unresolved, but there is reason to believe that the perpetrator's primary intent was to torture the Reverend, not to steal from him. That's one of those things where you initially hear he's an old man, he was bound and tied, he had to he lost a hand how horrible then it comes out how many other people were victims of his through this time that have that just have stayed silent it's really hard for me not to say he didn't deserve it 
it's it's again it's it's just hard no one should take that into their own hands but it's tough it's it's just tough and I hope that Mr. Crispin does find some healing and I do hope that the church steps up and takes some responsibility because to a large extent I don't feel like um that that they they haven't before we move on to our main event here let's think of some kittens and puppies shall we okay let's kind of cleanse our brain palate as I like to do because we're getting into some trigger warning areas here you've been warned about gore and what I consider gore is a lot of blood we're gonna there's a lot of blood in this I'm not going to talk a lot about blood evidence but the scenes themselves will kind of lead to that and of course part of that gore is child death I'm not going to go into the autopsy stuff. For the most part, I'm, I'm going to mention about the damage, the injuries, so we can understand the environment this has happened in for her. And also, we're going to be talking some medical talk of the aforementioned gorse. I tried to keep it factual, but I also tried to temper all of this in some way so we can kind of be detached but it's real hard to do so the murders of Devin and Damon Rudier did Darley do it so the Darley we're talking about is Darley Rudier she's the mother of five-year-old Damon and six-year-old Devin in 1996 when this happened she's the wife of Darren Rudier they do have a baby it's about eight months old his name's Drake at the time she was 26 and they were living in Rowlett Texas now, I did find a lot of this at darleyfacts.files.wordpress.com. They had a lot of information, I'm not going to lie. I wasn't going to go there, but it kept popping up on all my, all my searching. And looking at it, they do have fingerprints. They do have autopsies. They have a lot of it. They have the jury statements, um, transcripts. They they just have a lot. They have, of course, pictures of Darley's injuries and all the medical reports. Is it limited? Yes, of course. Um, I wish that there was more about from the prosecution side now. So I don't know if they just limited that or that's what it is. I tried to find the court documents aside from that and it was harder to do than I thought it would be. So I was impressed with how much they did have that may not look great. However, know that that was a lot of where I got things. So my history with this case is, I guess the best way to describe it is fraught with anxiety. Again, I'm going to, I'm going to use the term gore a lot. I just, I was never able to watch the forensic files and that's pretty much how I heard about it because of all the blood. It's important to know that not only from a investigation standpoint, but this happened right after, a few years after Susan Smith drowned her two little boys. So mothers killing their children was a hot topic, was a hot button, I guess. And when you see all that blood and know that it's attributed to these little guys, it, I mean, so that's what makes it more gory in my mind, I guess. So I was never able to get through the forensic files because of it. I was never able to really focus on that. And of course, on forensic files, it's fucking forensic files. They have the blood spatter experts. They have all the 
all the experts that says this, that's the other. It's picked for forensic files. You accept it and you move forward, right? She's a monster. The video <laughs> that I'll talk about a little bit here in a minute, the video, which really for myself and everybody else that they showed during the forensic files, really solidified Darlie's guilt, not only for me, but like I said, for pretty much everybody, because it, it most likely was the evidence that convicted her. That along with other things, obviously, but we'll talk about it. So I went into this with a lot of hesitation. V said, hey, I was watching Unsolved Mysteries, the original. I heard about this case, and do you know about it? Of course I did, and I was so hesitant. But talking about it and, and everything, it, it was like, okay, well, maybe I can take a different approach, which goes into my next thing, my approach. I tried to stay disconnected and detached from it knowing my anxiety around it and try to be Spock-like. And I'm not. I'm very empathic and highly sensitive and a control freak fixer. So I tried to challenge myself to be a professional researcher, podcaster person. So I figured, hey, I'm going to focus on the facts here. I'm going to start with statements, the actual police statements from Darlie and Darren, you know, right after it happened, get it from the horse's mouth and look at the autopsy. I need to see facts. I need to start there. I'm not going to do the normal thing I do, look at different newspaper articles, blah, blah, blah. I felt in this case, I needed the actual facts and not the media's take on it. I started with the autopsies. I'll get into that. Not a lot. That, ugh, that was as tough as I thought it would be. Um, it, I started to take a lot of notes and then I was like slowing down. Then I had to take a break, come back, try to be detach come on you can do this and why that's was at the point where I <laughs> texted V and was like okay so can you tell me why we did this again I just read the autopsy of a five-year-old who was murdered and I just why so I tried to go on to Damon's autopsy and I I couldn't I didn't make it very far so I came to the realization that it doesn't, it matters, but I'm not going to focus on it. Like I said, I'm going to mention some takeaways, but obviously the big takeaway, these babies were stabbed to death and it's, it's beyond horrific. So let's move on to start with the statements, the actual statements from Darlie and Darren after this happened, I think it was a couple days later that they gave statements. This happened the 6th, June 6th. So it was a couple days later because Darlie was in the hospital. Then I'm going to talk about the case, the summary of the case, the prosecution, the defense, the outcome, real high level, okay? Not really getting into things because I'll talk about the questions I have based on that and we'll kind of go from there. Let's start with Darlie's statement. She says that they have dinner as a family. And by that, she means baby Drake, Damon, Devin, Darren. They clean up and her and Darren talk about work. The boys go to play with a friend outside. 
She said she wasn't feeling well, so she asked Darren to drive her sister home. So I guess that's right. Her sister was also there for dinner. The boys got pillows, blankets, and decided to watch TV in the living room with Drake while Darley made popcorn. The boys then fell asleep. Darren took Drake to his crib upstairs in their room. She says when Darren came back down, they discussed issues they were having with the boat and car and, quote, and had a few words between us. Darley says she has been depressed since having Drake and wanted to be able to take the boys out, but couldn't due to them currently having only one vehicle. Darren told her he loved her and offered to sleep on the couch while she continued to watch TV, but she told him to go upstairs to bed. Darley had been sleeping on the couch because the baby tossed and turned a lot and woke, woke her up. She, She's just, um, you know, when you hear your baby breathing and stuff, you're afraid something's wrong. So she just found it difficult to sleep because she had been sleeping on the couch for a few weeks. Darren went on to bed since he had to work the next morning. She said it was about 1230 to one o'clock, but she wasn't sure about the time exactly. She fell asleep and then said she felt pressure waking her up. It was Damon pressing her right shoulder and he cried, causing her to wake up and see a man walking away from her feet. She walked after him and heard glass breaking. She got halfway through the kitchen, turned around to turn the light on. She runs toward the utility room, noticing a large white-handled knife on the floor. So let me real quick take you to the house setup. So the they're in the family room, which is near the front door, okay? Then it opens up into the kitchen. And then, of course, the garage and utility room are off the kitchen. So she walks after this intruder, gets halfway through the kitchen, turns the light on, runs toward the utility room where, when she notices a large white-handled knife on the floor. She realized at this point she had blood all over her. She grabbed the knife, thinking the intruder was in the garage. She saw um, the door to it shut. So she decided at that point when it shut, she needed to get Darren, though she had the knife. She runs back through the kitchen, realizing the entire living room had blood all over everything. She places the knife on the counter in the kitchen, I'm guessing, and ran into the entrance, turning on a light and screaming for Darren. I think running into the entrances near the front door. So she yells for Darren. He ran out of the bedroom with jeans on, no glasses, yelling, what is it? What is it? Darley said, quote, he cut them. He tried to kill me, my neck. Darren ran down to the living room and she called 911. Darren gave CPR to Devin and she put a towel on her neck and a towel over Damon's back. So I'm guessing that Damon had been on his stomach sleeping next to her, and Devin had been face up when he fell asleep watching TV. She told Devin to hang on, Mommy was there. She looked out, she looked over at Darren and saw the glass table, the coffee table, had been knocked halfway off and the flowers knocked over. She turned around, seeing glass on the kitchen floor. She said she took a few steps and opened the door and screamed for, it says, redacted. So she screamed for somebody. I think it may be a neighbor. So maybe she opened the front door, didn't say what door. And I, my question, um, I have a little note here. Why would this be redacted? It may be a neighbor who didn't want to 
be involved, but there was a lot of neighbors that gave testimony in the trial. Maybe it's a, a common thing that they do. She was on the phone with 911 during all of this. So they, they have this, her yelling and talking. She went back to Damon, who had ceased movement. The police walked in with the paramedics, who she said tried to save the children. Darren was screaming, who did this? Who did this? And she started asking if her babies were dead. Darren, crying, told her yes. She screamed and showed Darren her neck. Darren took her to the front of the house ran upstairs to check on Drake, showing her he was okay. So I'm guessing he brought down to the landing or something, look, she's okay. He was then, Drake was then given to name redacted, their neighbor. So them, she says, them holding a towel on her neck. So I'm guessing maybe it was the paramedics police and they were wrapping her arm up, placing her in the ambulance. Now go if you want to see her total injuries. She had bruised most of her arm. It is horrific looking. So I don't know if that was from the blood draining down through that arm. I'm not sure. But she was pretty beat up. She looked real bad. Darren also got in with her in the ambulance, but he was told to leave because they had to work on her injuries. She was then told she was going into surgery once she got to the hospital. Her necklace was removed and she was put under anesthesia. So she had been wearing a necklace, which I'll talk about in a second when I talk about her neck wound. When she awoke from surgery, the detectives began questioning her. I don't know if I've mentioned it, but it, they talk, they call this a Roman room, which I'm not sure where that's from probably Roman times, right? But it's a family room. So they had like a separate living room. The family room was in the entrance. So obviously it was a big, nice house. We go on to Darren's statement and then I'll kind of compare them. Darren says that they were watching TV in the family room. Drake fell asleep at 10, 1030 and was taken upstairs to their room. Gets back downstairs and said Darley and him discussed how the boys would not start playing baseball yet due to how busy they were with the baby. They also talked about the business, his business. She had kind of helped him start it and then it had moved on to like a larger commercial building. And so now she was staying with the boys and working at home. They also talked about bills and Darlie's difficulty taking care of the kids all day. She then said she would sleep better on the couch since Drake would keep her awake. The boys were asleep on the floor with their pillows and blankets with Devin face up in front of the TV and Damon near the couch where Darley was between it, the couch, and the coffee table. Darren got Darley a pillow and blanket and they talked more about her upcoming girl's trip to Cancun and he kissed her goodnight and went to bed around one. He then woke up when he heard something. My interjection here, it could have been the glass breaking or something. Then Darley screaming, she was screaming Devin's name. Darren said he grabbed his glasses and ran down to them. He knelt over Devin to see what was wrong and noticed the coffee table had fallen over on him. He also noticed Devin had two holes in his chest with muscles sticking out. Darren said he slapped Devin's face to get a response, but got none. Darren then said he started CPR, but noticed the air escaping from the holes in Devin's chest. So he put a hand over the holes and tried a total of five or six times to continue with CPR. Since that wasn't working, he then tried blowing into one of the holes to try to get in air into Devin's lungs that way. He looked over at Darley and noticed she was on the phone with 911. Darren then ran to Damon and found he had no pulse, but Darren didn't see any injuries at this time. So I'm assuming, but if Damon was on his back, 
you know, but his shirt was on, so I'm not sure. But again, it was a blur. This all happened in a few minutes. The police then entered the scene and Darren told them his babies were stabbed and Darley told him the intruder went out, told uh, the police, the intruder went out into the garage. Darren says he ran upstairs to get pants on and found Drake to be crying but unharmed. Darren also noticed his wallet on the floor and yelled for help. He then ran downstairs and across the street to he let whoever came to the door, which of course the name was redacted, know about the boys. And this neighbor and Darren ran back to the house as Damon was being placed into the ambulance. Darren says he knew Devin was dead before he even went across the street. Darren yells they have to find out who did this and was told Darley was also cut. He says he noticed the blood on her nightshirt from her neck to the bottom, but hadn't really noticed anything else. The paramedics said she needed to also go to the hospital, and as she was being helped onto the stretcher, she told Darren to promise her that they would find this man that killed their babies. He said he then walked back in the house and was pushing his way through the police when he saw the knife on the bar in the kitchen with blood all over it. Somebody went to the garage and um, and the door. Who this um, the name on his written statement was illegible, so we don't know who looked uh, took a look at the window where it was said the man entered. Darren said he left his home again, going across the street where neighbors comforted him and asked what happened. Darren sat on the curb for a minute then walked over to the ambulance and asked if Damon was alive and was told no, and he was in shock. A name that was redacted advised him to go with Darley in the ambulance, but when he tried, he said they kicked him out because they needed to work on her and he couldn't go. He said the fire department then asked him questions, probably meaning the paramedics, so I'm guessing in these next statement, um... They called 911, who sent out, like, I don't know if it would be volunteer department, but also a lot of times you have an, an ambulance as part of that. So they didn't know what hospital that Darley was being taken to. He found out that she was being taken to Baylor, Dallas, and he drove there. Darren said he was questioned by at Baylor by Detective Frosch, F-R-O-S-C-H, for hours. Okay, so... Breaking it down here, both Darley and Darren agree on the location of the boys, their sleeping arrangement, that they discussed some upsetting topics, and the coffee table was knocked over. Probably a few things more, but those are the big things that stuck out with me. Darley says she showed Darren her neck, and he takes her to the front of the house, presumably to the paramedics, then goes upstairs to get Drake, showing her he was okay, and Darren then gave Drake to the neighbor. Darren says he didn't know about her neck until he was told, and I'm guessing by a neighbor. I mean, the name was redacted, but I think he, it was a neighbor who told, said, hey, you gotta go with her. It's her neck. And then he think, remembers all the blood, assuming probably that it was from the boys. Darley says she noticed the white-handled knife on the kitchen floor as she was running to the utility room and then grabbed it as she headed towards the garage where she thought the man was. Then she decided to get Darren. She put the knife on the kitchen counter, then went to the entranceway where she turned on the light and yelled for Darren. And Darren, of course, he confirmed that he saw the knife on the kitchen bar, as he called it. Darley stated he ran out with jeans and no jeans on and no glasses, but Darren said he put on his glasses upon hearing the yelling and then went upstairs to put his pants on later. Little things. And again, so much was going on in a short time. So I'm just pointing out this and that, not saying anything, just pointing stuff out here. Darren said Damon had no pulse and he hadn't noticed injuries on him. 
and Darley said she placed a towel on his back. So again, not saying that because she found, she knew about the injuries that she had done them, not saying that she didn't. Uh, there was a lot happening. So, but those are, again, those are some discrepancies. So the summary for this case Darley ended up being tried for Damon's murder only. I remember Damon was beside her near the couch. She knew about his back. He didn't have a pulse. They worked on Devin on the way to the hospital. So maybe that's why. And we'll talk about what they, as far as uh, evidence, what they had to do that. They felt. The prosecution said that Darley had been depressed uh, and she kept a journal which she did write about her feelings. They said she was overwhelmed and there was indeed a, what they kind of points to as a suicide note or an entry about the intent for completing suicide when she was really down and, and feeling overwhelmed. Darren did say that she had sleeping pills but she didn't do anything he he kind of talked her down he says the next day she was fine I don't see how that's really possible in the court transcripts when she was giving her testimony she said I was very depressed I was feeling overwhelmed but it was not an attempt she didn't actually do anything then of course we have the gravesite video on Devin's seventh birthday it was shown a total of eight times during the trial. So let's talk about this video, shall we? You can find this on YouTube and it is admittedly, like I said, your mouth is open the whole time, just agape. And it's shocking because he was, he wanted to be seven. According to Darley, he just thought seven was a big boy. He wanted to be seven. And I think he had been asking for like a little pocket knife and they said no it, it's too dangerous and so they ended up burying him with this little pocket knife and of course people really had comments on that think what you want but that's the reasoning she says behind them putting that in there the video further shows that they had silly string just the video itself that was shown okay I'm talking about that portion that was shown they had silly string they sang happy birthday I think they even had a cake I couldn't watch it again and I really didn't want to address it but I have to because it's just it's that bad it focuses obviously on celebrating and they did it at the grape site so it looks like they're celebrating death and what Darley's family was very upset about was the fact they cut the two-hour, I believe it was like two-hour graveside memorial down to that however long of a video that they kept showing on TV and in the court for the jury. What it doesn't show is, and I've not seen this part because I just couldn't get through it anyway, what it doesn't show, they say, is everyone together crying, giving their memories, how upset Darley was, talking about her babies, and they didn't show what led up to that, which was the majority of the video, they say. They then were like, okay, we've gone through this, let's focus on, he was a big boy, He's, he would be seven today, let's end on a positive Again, make make of that what you want. Just seeing one part of it, obviously, it's going to be 
triggering to those feelings. So I still maintain just that part of the video being shown is enough to convict her. So check it out on YouTube. I don't know if the other part is out there. It probably is, but not as popular. So the defense was saying that Darley did not have the time to complete the murders. Wound herself, placed the sock. So the sock was found like 75 yards away from the home. The window was cut. The gate was kicked open. And they're saying all this happened within two minutes. And at the, during this time, she was on the phone with 911. So how could she run around, do that? And it's just a time issue, right? That's the majority of the argument. Now, the outcome was what we know. She got sentenced to death by lethal injection. My questions are this. This neck wound always bothered me because I would hear different things. It was superficial. Why were her wounds superficial? Looking at the photos, again, understanding their photos posted on a pro-Darley site, but if you just look at the photos, they are bad. They are bad. And I think one of the nurses said it looks like she fought for her life or it was someone who fought for her life. So focusing not only on the neck wound, but just on looking at the what a doctor testified he said that her neck wound was 10 centimeters or a little less than four inches long on the admitting report he noted that she was tearful and frightened there was a 2.75 inch stab wound on her right neck zone and i guess the neck zone is put into like three zones depend you know depending on where the arteries are and whatnot. And this neck zone wound had plastismal penetration. I forget what that means, but it sounds serious. It was actively bleeding. Also, it was noted a seven centimeter laceration on her left shoulder, a three centimeter laceration on her right forearm that did require stitches. And there was a note about the need for neck exploration. I've heard of space exploration. And I wasn't looking forward to finding out neck exploration, but of course I had to. Now, they, it also was noted that the neck spurted blood when touched, and the necklace she was wearing was embedded in the wound. So if it was superficial, why was surgery needed? And I looked at the picture of the necklace, and there was a, a little area that obviously looked like you could tell that it had been stabbed and they're saying that that saved her life that it was actually two centimeters or less than one inch 0.8 inch away from her carotid artery so not superficial the testimony of dr alejandro santos says the vessels that feed blood to your brain and the vessels that bring the blood back to your heart are in this area that she was wounded also the trachea the voice box all these kind of injuries can be very devastating if they're not taken care of right away so it's usually better to examine those in the operating room and get better control in case you get into trouble meaning it's in an area that is detrimental so therefore exploratory surgery to check the veins and other structures in this zone 2 area so not superficial all right confirmed Fingerprints. There was a bloody print from the glass table that had been fallen over onto Devon, and there were two lifted from the utility door. Looking into that further, Darley was excluded from the utility door, and 
Again, darlyfacts.com says that three out of four experts say that she could not be, she was excluded from the glass table. However, of course, the prosecution disagrees. So that's kind of on up in the air, right? So we have the fingerprints from at least the glass table. Utility door is not her. Now the sock that they talked about with blood on it, it was both the boy's blood that was on the sock. Now it was an adult sock. It wasn't a, a child sock. And Darren did say that it was his, but none of his DNA or Darley's were on it. So that's the second thing. Sock and fingerprints. Now the other big thing that popped up is Darren. Okay, so what about Darren? And I kept that in mind as I looked through statements, testimonies, evidence, and they the police really didn't seem to focus on him much during the initial investigation. Now, post-conviction information within the last uh, decade brings him back into light, but we'll get to that. So Darren doesn't seem to really be investigated as being part of it. There are, of course, people that think that he knows more than he let on, but as far as the police, nothing ever came out about that. He d he's not painted in a great light, but, you know, that happens, unfortunately. My next question was, what about life insurance on the boys, right? So, went on to find out that the boys did have life insurance. They had about 5000 on each of them, and that's pretty standard. Even, you know, when you're, when your baby's born, they send you tons of stuff, Gerber Life, whatnot, and you can get just insurance. But that didn't cover the funeral bill, which ended up being 14000 So, wasn't for, you know, an exorbitant sum. And it didn't cover the costs. Darley, about what about her life insurance? Because I thought, well, maybe it was an attempt on her. Maybe Darren decided to do away with all of them. Darley did have two hundred fifty thousand of life insurance, but of course, that's a moot point because she survived. So that goes into money issues. Talk about life insurance. What was going on with their finances, if anything, that was detrimental? They did have. They did bring up money issues in the trial. That was looked into by the police. They had, two, they were two mortgage payments behind and they owed like, I think 12 grand to American Express. Now Darren said on the stand that he had paid that mortgage up to date by the time that letter came, you know, saying, hi, did you forget to pay us? So he didn't bother opening it up because it was found in his vehicle. So why open it? I know what it's going to say and it's been taken care of, but he did leave it in his car. He also said that when you're making around 200000 a year, and this was in the 90s, hello, that 12000 isn't a big deal. So it's a drop in the bucket. So why would I worry about, I don't know, 50 cents when I had $200? I'm just using that as an analogy that's probably not great. Darren ended up losing the house, car, and boat to fund Darley's defense. So if he did plan all this, it real backfired on him, and he doesn't have his family. I also found it interesting that he said in his testimony that when he got back to the house after the police investigation, there was so much damage done that he couldn't stay there. And I forget how many thousands of dollars he said damage they did, like taking down tiles and causing things to to leak. There's water leakage, water damage. So I, I don't know what all they took that would have caused that. So I don't know why he didn't file an insurance claim, but maybe he felt he had been victimized enough and he, and he just couldn't deal with it, which is completely understandable. Or he tried 
to file a claim was denied and maybe because he left the house you know you have this thing called you have a duty to mitigate the any further loss so by him looking at it saying fuck it and getting worse maybe they were like I'm sorry dude but (laughs) you need to cover stuff up you needed to let us know and then you know try to take care of it and, and stop it from getting worse don't know and I further looked into that just a little and you may have to actually sue the police to get compensated, but that probably wouldn't be in his best interest. And again, going back to this horrible trauma. So I'm not sure, but those are some things to think about, obviously. So the autopsies, they were conducted, of course, the same day as the death. I'm not going to say much, but I have to say something. Devin was six and the big um, sharp force injuries were noted were on his neck, chest, abdomen, and back. There was one on his left upper chest, which ended up piercing his left upper and right lower lobes in the pulmonary artery. And the second one punctured his ribs, hitting the liver. The third one was a left forearm that involved soft tissue only. The fourth was the back of his left thigh and was soft tissue damage only as well. There was a few other damages, other injuries that were noted. Um, The big one that kind of stuck out to me was the left side of his neck had a petechial hemorrhage, which, you know, I'm thinking petechial when someone tries to choke or strangle. There wasn't anything noted in his eyes and usually you can see petechial like the red specks in the eyes, it means that there was choking or strangulation. Didn't see that. That's all I'm going to say about that, other than it was signed by five medical examiners, the autopsy, the deputy chief medical examiner, and the chief medical examiner. So a bunch of professionals, experts agreed to this. Going into Damon... Again, just real quick, he was five, and he was the one that was, his death and murder was the one that his mother, Darley, was tried for. He did have, um, but he didn't have petechiae. The ET tube was in place because they were working on him, even though he didn't really have a pulse. They really worked to try to save him. And there was just a lot of markings that were, um, puncture marks that were, noted circled and starred and um, had arrow stickers because I think they I think the paramedics had to denote what they had done in the course of trying to give medical attention and saving him than what the actual injuries that they found were the the stab wounds to him were to the back that penetrated the lower left lung upper back location that hit the right lung right mid back also hitting the right lung low right mid back significantly damaging the lower right lung diaphragm and liver so it seems to have hit more vital organs and of course the diaphragm where you breathe and they noted a lot of blood pooling so that's all I'm going to talk about on that looking at the forensic files case so I did watch it but I didn't really watch it I kind of listened to it so I had it on one screen and I would toggle back and forth or keep my keep that screen in the background so I could take notes and not watch it and focus on what they were saying on the evidence itself and it really helped me to 
keep focus. And what I noted here was it mentions Starley's neck wound missed her carotid artery by, like I said, less than an inch, two centimeters, 0.8 inches. Devin died on the way to the hospital. Starley's underwear was missing and that a rape test was negative. Nothing in her initial statement to police mentions her saying anything about this. So this was the first time I heard about it. And my initial thinking was, what the hell? How did that even come up? And, you know, sometimes you just want to get air in certain places, you know? I mean, maybe she took him off after the boys slept. Maybe, you know, it could be a lot of different reasons. Maybe she didn't wear them a lot, okay? Big deal. But the nurse that they interviewed for Forensic Files really showed her disdain with this and the fact that Darley apparently said to her now I couldn't I didn't go looking I was reading so many court statements and they're so long and can go into a lot of minutiae you know have you lived here all your life and what's your experience and blah blah so I have a note to myself to read her statement but all it's going to do is support it <laughs> really um she seemed to really be taken aback by the fact that you know darlie didn't have those on and she said well do you think that maybe you were raped and darlie supposedly said to her well i did feel a pressure down there i saw nothing nothing in this in her statement initially and in what she read you know, what was told in the courtroom, her statement in her testimony that said anything about this. Now, they did have a lot of the defense stuff and not the prosecution. I don't know if that's just how it was. I didn't, you know, I, I assumed just from watching TV and that they would cross-examine her and maybe this was mentioned, but again, maybe that was pulled out as to show that she was a whore you know she was a monster whore didn't wear underwear had her Victoria's Secret nightshirt on which wasn't lingerie p.s so anyway I did I, I but that did take me aback I'm not gonna lie I was like okay why why was that a thing because rape wasn't a, an allegation in this right so that was something. Darley said the intruder was a white male, about six feet tall, had black shirt, jeans, and a baseball cap. Now keep in mind she was in the dark at this time, so I'm not saying it was, I'm not saying it wasn't. She said there that he dropped the knife as he left. So apparently that was the knife she said she saw on the kitchen floor near the utility room when she was on her way. Of course the sock was found outside. And now the motive of course, they're talking about in the initial police investigation that it wasn't robbery because there were rings and jewelry there. And the blood evidence they had that there, were, there, of course, was a splatter pattern, which meant that there was some type of knife, you know, a stabbing motion that was done. The garage screen window was the entry point. It had been cut. They say, forensic files, police, whoever, that she told them she awoke when she felt pressure on her neck. But when I read her statement to police, as I, you know, summarized to you, and you can feel free to read it, her handwritten or the typed up version, the transcription, 
she says it was from Damon pressing on her right shoulder and crying. I, and I had a note to myself, you know, look at the statement in trial about the knife at her throat. I looked through it. Again, it happened to be the defense, her talking to her defense attorney, giving her testimony on that side, that presentation, but it was not in the statement at the trial. So I, again, I don't know if, I mean, they have prosecution items from the jur from the trial. I, I'm not sure, not being super familiar with how it works. And, but I just know I did not see it myself. The episode also says that Darren heard glass breaking and this woke him up. So, okay. So he said he heard something. He woke up, he, he heard that kind of woke up, but then he heard early screaming for De about Devin. So then comes this author. They have this author named Patricia Springer, who wrote the book about the murders, Flesh and Blood. She, of course, disdainfully, I don't, you know, I've, why wouldn't you be in this situation? We, she's, Darlie's been convicted, but I just found her to be kind of, I don't know, irritating? She says Darren's first words to police were, have you seen Darlie? Isn't she beautiful and doesn't she have gorgeous breasts? I, this and the panties thing, I was like, what the hell? Where is this? So I immediately wrote down, looked for this statement in court documents because they also then went to show this Lieutenant uh, Grant H. Jack. So Lieutenant Jack, he was like, oh, he says this and that. And he was just, Darren was so kind of cavalier about everything. Said he wouldn't blame somebody breaking in. His wife was so hot, basically. Now, this all struck me as just like, what the hell does it have to do with anything? So are you saying that Darren did it? Or I just, that just kind of threw me. I don't remember seeing that, but of course, maybe I never did because I did, couldn't watch the whole damn episode. Between the book and this statement, I looked into the book for a while because I was going to read it. It is out of print and I wasn't going to pay 40 bucks for this woman who it seemed like to me, and again, this is just based on these short things that happened. But it seems like she just spoke to whoever would speak with her and didn't read the testimony. Now, I mean, obviously, if it was on forensic files, she had been convicted. But it further made me feel that way when I looked for the statement. And there was not a Lieutenant Grant Jack that was um, questioned. There was no testimony from him. Again, maybe it's on the prosecution side. But... Even if so, when I was Googling him, I found out he was the commander of the Rowlett's investigative division and that he further says that Darren made a comment to him, of course, just to him only. Nobody else was there. It was crawling with cops and paramedics, but only he heard it, about her 38 double D and being blonde and how inviting this must have been for someone. Look, I'm not saying he didn't say it. I'm just saying I'd like to see it like official, also found that according to the Dallas News, in September of 2014, he was investigated for drugs and bribery and fired. He had been a Dallas County District Attorney's Office investigator, so he went from leading that on to the DA's office, and he had been assigned to a Secret Service Task Force and was accused of offering a confidential informant favors in return for sex as well as sharing information about ongoing investigations with her. So, yeah, great guy, very professional, and I don't trust that, obviously. Going back to the forensic files ep, 
the audio analysis of the 911 call, this expert says that listening and analyzing the audio, he finds that she moved into three different rooms during the calls. So initially I had a note compare this to the statement of Darley's, but you know what? Okay. She ran from the family room where it happened, into the kitchen, turned around, ran back, said she was on her way. Um, all right. So, okay, so I don't put a lot of stock in that, obviously. What I do put stock in is the blood evidence, fingerprints, things like that. So, and I work with audio. I'm not great at editing, but I know just a little. They say that a bloody towel was being held in Darley's neck it was tested to see if any other blood was on it besides hers, and there wasn't. So they were thinking, okay, so maybe she took this towel, and while waiting for the cops to show up in the ambulance, she was cleaning up because there was so much blood. And they feel that there was signs of cleanup. There was blood in front of the sink, and they say the amount of blood and the fact it was Darley's, it was where she stood, cut her neck and arm. So she does this really deep cut and more superficial cut. Now she did have to have stitches on the one on her forearm. The, they're saying that she just stood there and did this. On the carpet, there was an outline of a knife. Now I have a note um, for the knife, did it have the blood from Darley and Damon on it? And it did. So I think that's why she was, that goes to also, besides the video, why she got convicted and charged initially with Damon's and not Devin because they found that blood with hers. So that again goes to say she says it was in the kitchen. Why are we finding only evidence of the outline of the knife in the carpet where they were sleeping? The dogs could find no scent of the intruder past the sock. So that they're saying that Darley ran out. That's why the dogs couldn't find anything because she ran back to the house. Darley says she chased the intruder through the kitchen and he knocked a wine glass over onto the floor. They said that the glass was on top of the blood drops on the floor and she didn't have any cut feet. I say you can step over it. She... I, I can't remember if she didn't turn the light on at that point. Maybe she was lucky and ran back, turned the light on, saw it, and stepped over it, and just didn't think to say anything because it just was survival at that point. I don't know. Maybe she did it and knew it, and that's why how she could step over it. There was blood under the vacuum in the kitchen, which was overturned, with a wheel impression in the blood. So they're saying that she placed it down there. She's, she tried to stage things. The handle from the vacuum had a blood stain that was Darley's. It says this, this points to her doing all this after, and she was leaning over the handle at an 80 degree angle. Now I think, you know, really specific stuff like that, that can tend to make you see okay. I'm not saying she did, I'm not saying she didn't, just presenting it. Tom Bevel was a blood spatter expert, and I had a note to myself, look up his reputation. So I don't know if you've heard, but there have been podcasts recently and more investigation about so-called experts. I wanted to find out, kind of like with Lieutenant Jack, if anything had come out. I couldn't find anything doing just a basic quick search about him, but of course, darlyfacts.com, their site does have links to cases where he, he testified on behalf of the prosecution, and there were either confirmed or suspected wrongful convictions. So things do come out. The prosecution, the police say that there are blood drops on the kitchen floor circular in the pattern. 
which shows that someone was standing still or moving slow, which contradicts Darley's statement saying she was running through the kitchen. So they're saying that she was slow enough. She, she knew that they were dying and she walked slowly. That's what caused the patterns. If she had been running, they say the proof would be an elliptical drops with a tail showing the way the person was running. So I guess the tail um, would, would be facing the direction she was going. They said they found no evidence of a knife drop. Again, on the carpet, but not in the kitchen. Luminol was used in the kitchen where they found footprints in front of the sink. They were Darley's, and as also was the blood in, in the front of it. She cut herself there and she stood there. They said that looks bad. Darley was saying she was cut and when she was laying down. She doesn't feel it. She doesn't really mention it. Um, it kind of happened and Devin and then um, Damon was pulling on her. That was the pressure she felt. So she thinks. I, again, reading that just now, it really hit me. Okay, if you have such a bad wound, how do you not know that? I mean, I know that when there's significant injury, your body can put so many endorphins out that some people say they don't feel they don't they didn't feel anything. And but she was asleep too. So it wasn't like she cognitively knew this was bad and her body had time to act. It, it was asleep. So that is that's a big thing that kind of hops out at me there. The blood on the knife. Damon and Darley's only. Okay. And again, she was not tried for Devin's murder. That blood was her and Damon's. The police said there was no evidence of an intruder. The bread knife that was found, that white-handled knife, had fiberglass rods and dust on it from the screen. So they're saying, why would someone break in, see a knife, do all this, and leave it? Devil's Advocate could say, well, stuff went down. They saw a, a weapon. Maybe the kids were starting to wake up and, you know, they did it then. But why would, how would they get in and then cut the screen? So that's something else. The cast off that was found on Darley's shirt was, was the, belonged to the boys and they said because it was behind her shoulder, it shows that she had been stabbing and it flung on her back. And so it supported the theory that she was stabbing the boys, causing the blood in that area there in the family room. Prosecutors said the boys were in the way of her lifestyle. She was a stay-at-home mom and had a baby. So... I don't really know, but they, you know, the whole thing was how materialistic they were. They had a boat. They had this big house. She was going to go to Cancun and they had, and despite all that, they were behind in mortgage and owed a significant amount to a credit card. My thinking was, okay, her lifestyle was being at home. Maybe she loved that. She was overwhelmed because Darren apparently didn't help her. <laughs> And we've heard that story a lot, that storyline. So you, you could put that in one column or the other, which I do here in a minute. The author of this book says she was overwhelmed since Darren didn't help. And like I said, and she saw this as her way out. 
she would just have baby drake there would be less pressure she could have some you know room to breathe so that was the thinking i'm gonna go back here and let's just touch a few things here about the panties Darren does address this. He answers about her panties and his testimony doesn't really, I mean, nothing really comes out about it. I don't know what, why this is such a thing. Officer Frosch, who was, who had questioned him for hours, he ended up taking the fifth under, under oath, which does not bode well for him. Why do you take the fifth? So that's in a column, of course, you can imagine which one. Let's talk about the court reporter. The court reporter went on to be sued. Her name was Sandra, or is, Sandra Halsey. She was sued to recover the $63,000 she was paid to repair the Rudier trial record. Because it says that it contains over like 30,000 errors big ones. Now I kind of noticed them when I was reading things, but I just thought I haven't read trials. I haven't read trial transcripts before. So I thought maybe I was just missing some stuff. Maybe you have to read it from top to bottom. Everybody's in order, right? That's not the case. She had chunks of information. Uh, maybe she just had a deadline, had to get it done. I don't know. Maybe she sucks at her job. Maybe she had a bad few weeks there. Who knows? But it is fact that she has been sued for her lack of professionalism. So that's in a column. And, you know, this is the last thing I'm going to say about these panties. I kind of thought about it and I was like, okay, ultimately, where does, where does that get us? Okay, nowhere. How does this go to showing any guilt or innocence? There's larger blood evidence and fingerprints to look at. And you know what? She went through a traumatic event. The panties really are just, I don't know, a, a means to an end of somebody's, you know, doing for whatever reason. Darren's boob statement. All right. So if it's true, it shows he's a dick, but this in itself doesn't point to him being part of a larger conspiracy to rid himself of his children, in my mind. I mean, he likes titties. He likes them big. He purchased his wife some boobs. So if anything, it shows how shallow and possibly insecure that they both are, but it just doesn't indicate a direct line to murder for me. Now, what does possibly is, I told you we'd talk about Darren's post-conviction development. 2002, Darley's stepfather signed an affidavit that Darren discussed a fake burglary with him a few months prior to the murder. So the plan was to have someone break in while the family was gone and take gobs of stuff. Then Darren would make an insurance claim, paying the burglar out of the money. I mean, the gobs of stuff, I guess, would be stashed somewhere. So they'd get it back. So they'd have both. They'd have the money for it and the actual stuff, right? When, when, oh, and the person would get paid. Darley's defense team really seized upon this and feels that it shows someone could have decided to proceed with the plan, but it went awry. Witnesses' testimony said that they did notice a black car in the days preceding the murder seemingly to watch the house. Now, of course, it jumps to my mind, why didn't dude say anything before this? He claims he was afraid it would point to Darren, and he knows he didn't do it. So I'm going to wait, and my daughter 
you know, she's in jail, but I don't think this is going to be helpful. Now, Darren says that the defense team pretty much put the statement out in front of him, said, sign this. It'll help Darlie. And he did it. Further making it bad for Darren is he's kind of known to do this stuff. He discussed with a former friend of Darlie's that was a neighbor that said he was planning to do this with his Jaguar. And he didn't do any of it. But he's known for talking about this kind of stuff, thinking about this kind of stuff. The big thing for me that I found out and kind of in the beginning when I was researching was the Innocence Project is involved in Darley's case. So I looked it up. I looked up the actual um, from the Dallas County, their website, and found out everything that had been checked out in the status. So you can find out that information too by looking at innocenceproject.org. And if you go to the Dallas County website, you can type in case number F as in Frank, 963-9973. Click on the document dated 421 of 21. Sorry, 422 of 21 for proof. Now this is according to soapboxy.com. I did it. And the Innocence Project has paid for the garage window to be shipped to a forensic analytical crime lab in Hayward, California. And in this, they were given 30 days to do this from the dated 12-15-21 order. Also, on the same date, an order for all lab reports at the Texas Department of Public Safety was to be sent to the Innocence Project in New York, and I think it's headquartered there. And they were given 14 days. They, a September 30th of 21 order was requested for the sock, Darley shirt, the blue and green blankets, Damon's jeans, a foreign pubic and facial hair. Now, I admit I didn't read every single thing about from the court documents, but I would think that a foreign pubic and facial hair would be something that both of them, both sides, the defense and the prosecution, would be, for the lack of a better term, waving around, saying, hey, here was this, more so the, def the defense. So that was interesting to me. They also requested Devin and Damon's fingernail clippings, the bloody knife, the purple pillow, and various swabs. Now, I wanted to see how often this happened. How often does the Innocence Project get actually take the files. I'm sure they get tons of requests. So I looked it up. Their success rate, and this is on their website, they have a success rate as of January 2020. They've documented over 375 DNA exonerations in the states. 21 of these exonerees had previously been sentenced to death. The vast majority the vast majority, 97% of these people, were wrongfully convicted of committing sexual assault and or murder. Of all the cases taken on by the Innocence Project, about 43% of the clients were proven innocent. 42 were confirmed guilty, so about half and half, about the same. And evidence was inconclusive and not pro probative in 15% of the cases, so... This is going to either really confirm, either way, her guilt or innocence. 
Every year, approximately 2,400 people write to us for the first time asking for help, and at any given time, we are evaluating between six and 8,000 potential cases. So like I said, the fact that they are actually doing this after all this time is big, and it could really give closure either way. So in all this, I started from the beginning to kind of sketch out how I was going to do what I was, how I was going to approach this. And I had put early in my notes, a pros and cons section. And I was surprised at how little I have overall. So I guess that I'm really waiting to see what comes out from the Innocence Project. But here it is what I have. I have in the column titled Support Starly, there was blood on the pillow she was sleeping on. So the fact that there was blood on the pillow supports what she says, that she was, her neck was sliced while she was asleep while she was laying down, and that she didn't do it in the kitchen. I'm going to add in the against Darley column, as it kind of hit me as I was recording this, the fact that she had, she didn't say anything about the pressure on the neck. And that kind of stood out to me more so than it had before. So against Darley, I'm going to add the uh, no neck pressure reported. So it's official. So that kind of strikes me. Next in the support Starley column is Lieutenant Grant's firing. So his, the developments about him being such an a-hole professionally and morally, that's kind of a big thing. And I guess I shouldn't say morally, but because, you know, whatever. But, you know, it's, that's a big thing for me. People's reputations that come out after conviction. The neck wound. It wasn't superficial. I'm going to also put neck wound <laughs> the against Darley because the neck wound was bad and could have been life-threatening. However, if you look at it in the against Darley column, maybe she did it with all the rush of adrenaline. She did it deeper. She was thinking it has to be, has to look bad and, and she did it deeper than she thought. Maybe she did try to commit suicide. I don't, I don't know, but I, I've got to put that neck wound in both. Uh, the next thing for supporting Darley is the court reporter. Again, reputation. It was ruined by her own fingers. The supports Darley column also gets added. Darren's alleged scam plan doesn't look good, Maybe somebody did. Maybe he was in on it more and they just couldn't or didn't probe into that evidence. Maybe something will come out. Also under supporting Darley is the officer on the scene took the fifth. Now, why would someone that I don't remember if he was a lead investigator on it, but he was he obviously was very involved and talked to both of them. Why would he take the fifth? Next on that side is the eyewitness accounts supporting Darley. Now, they said there was a black car. And further, I found that a neighborhood woman said that she saw two men in the area prior in that same time frame. And 
they had tried to break into her home where she was alone with her 15-year-old. Another woman said one of the men was six feet tall when she saw them walking around, which, you know, Darley did say the dude was about six feet tall. Overall, really, as you've probably figured, it's the, just the fact that the Innocence Project is looking into the file. That, to me, supports that they see something. What comes out of that? Don't know. Looking forward to finding out. And I know it's going to take a little while, but given the time frames from the orders, it seems like things are moving. Against Starly, I have big, big thing here, besides the video, rubbing people the wrong way. She just really seemed to not act the way people thought she should, from nurses to how the media portrayed her. The big thing, again, I don't know how much the Susan Smith, it probably set up a lot, but uh, why wasn't she dead if her boys were? That's the big thing I kept coming back to that you can imagine. And I think I thought, why wasn't she dead? She had a real bad neck wound. She had a lot of injuries. And how was it that the the person just ran away? Hmm. Then, of course, the video. The video, it, it did her in. It, you just wonder if the video wasn't even there. If we look at everything else, she looked callous. She looked, you know, there was reports from some of the nurses. She didn't seem to want to even hold baby Drake, but she was in ICU and she had a lot of a lot of tubes and and she was probably afraid the baby's gonna kick it go for neck um but one of the nurses stated that you know she turned away when the nurse tried was holding him baby drake and put him toward her so she could kiss him she turned away so doesn't look good but i've never been through that i would think that i would just not be able to get enough of you know my existing family, but grief. So I can't help but think if the video was taken, they would still focus on the other things. They would still have the media portrayal of her as a monster mom. And, but the video just, it, it ended it. The fact that um, there even was a Forensic Files episode on her, that Forensic Files is known for being the end-all be-all their experts are, are it, the top, the shit, and that was, that was it. Um, and like I had already mentioned, the Against Darley now has added the no neck pressure reported by her and her neck wound. So I have a lot more in the supports Darley section than the Against Darley. And that probably, I'm going to admit, is tainted through the lens of seeing a lot of things on that um, Darley facts. I did try to find other things. Um, maybe I didn't try hard enough, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist. I, and like probably everybody else, who wants to think that a mom did it? Who wants to think that? It'd be easier to think that some stranger just came in and did this, but just to come in and murder little boys, not take anything, not 
go upstairs, not, I mean, maybe it was convenient, right? They just came in, but how did they come in? That knife was reported as being theirs. And so I don't know, I'm still waiting to see. And maybe, maybe I'll do some prosecution, some, you know, anti- and maybe I should have done more of that. But honestly, this was just so much. The nightmares. <laughs> I I just guess I'm just putting it in the Innocence Project's hands and letting them sort it out because I just I just can't anymore. Um I've hit I've hit the wall. So that's it. I am being called back into that lab by Queen V. She's saying, hey. Here's some fish heads, bitch. Come and get it. You got some salty fish head goodness. She calls me Iggy. Not really. So it's time for me to depart, lab rats. Remember, everybody has got to find their truth. And mine is Abby Normal. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats.